Paving the Way with Prayer is Dr. Joel Hunter's sermon series. He will discuss the subject, Preparation in Prayer, Silence. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter has chosen the first chapter of Luke, verses 5 through 25 as a scripture text, and it reads as follows. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it came about, while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense, and Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. And it came about, when the days of the priestly service were ended, that he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. And now, let's join in for praise and worship, followed by Dr. Joel Hunter's message, Preparation in Prayer, Silence. It's my wife, Patty, folks, and uh, our daughter, Lisa. Psalm 46 tells us, Be still and know that I am God. Isaiah 9, 2, and 6 says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. A son is given to us. He existed before his birth, and he shall reign forever and ever. His promise is the perfect peace of God. The mystery is how anything perfect can get better, but he promises no end to the increase of his government or his peace. It will get better and better and deeper and deeper. 
and that promise is for us to accept. All we need are ears to hear and eyes to see. During the season of Advent, let us see through the frantic commercialism and hear beyond the rush. Let us prepare our hearts through meditation and prayer. Do not let your soul grow numb. Let us make straight a path for the Lord to deepen our faith. Let us be a light in the darkness. Mark 13:35 says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cockcrowing, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we hunger and hope with such intensity that at times we forget that what we hunger and hope for is you. Instill in us throughout this time of preparation a longing for your word and a thirst for your presence. It is not what we do for you during this season that will change our hearts, but what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father in heaven, this morning we come before you acknowledging you as creator of all things. Father, we recognize that you are sovereign over all of your creation. And as we think about the reality of that fact, our hearts are filled with wonder that you have given us access into your presence through prayer. Lord, we realize that that access is not because of anything that we've done or because we deserve it. We know that it's all because of you, and it's just another evidence of your love and your grace. Father, we are a needy people. We need you. And yet, we live our lives so often as if we were independent of you. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for that. And right now, we want to acknowledge that we are totally dependent on you. And as we enter into this month of special prayer emphasis, Lord, we would ask that you would do a work in our midst. We would ask that you would work in our marriages and in our families and in our relationships with those that we work with. We live in a society that is in tremendous need of you, Lord, and we ask that you would use us there. Father, we would most of all ask that our heart's desire would be the desire that the Apostle Paul expressed when he asked that he might know you in a greater and a deeper way. Lord, we would ask that in the days ahead that you would do a mighty work in our midst so that the people that look on and see our lives in the life of this church might recognize that we are truly your people. And because of that, they would give you the honor and glory. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your scriptures with you, and you would like to turn with me to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we will be excerpting a passage and preaching that passage. While you're doing that, let me do a little housekeeping item here. Um, We're going to be having baptisms at our house uh, 
2 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, you don't need an appointment for that. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you want to make a public profession of your faith, as it says in Scriptures, you are invited. There are maps in the information rack out in the foyer. Uh, simply wear something uh, that is that can be gotten wet jeans and a sweatshirt or something like that. And uh, I want to warn you that my pool is not heated, so you had better love Jesus if you're going to be baptized today. <laughs> we are entering into a season of prayer. And this is following the first glimpse of the 25-year vision for this church. And it's appropriate that we would enter into this season of prayer because whenever the people of God have been given a glimpse of what they were to do, the reaction is basically the same. First, it's doubt. And then because of that doubt, it is frantic activity to organize what we think God wants for us. It is also very appropriate to go back to the first season of anticipation of God coming among his people in a whole new way. And to see how he prepared those people so that he might prepare us in some of the same ways. Therefore, we're going to be talking this morning about John the Baptist's dad and mom. And we're going to be talking about one aspect of prayer that very few Christians ever exercise but it has meant more to me and my spiritual growth than any other single aspect. First, in verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod the king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. Now, let me just parenthetically work my way through this with, with some relevant details. First of all, to understand this text, you must understand that since the time of Aaron, all of the descendants of Aaron were automatically priests. Aaron was Moses' brother, who was the first priest. And so therefore, there was, uh, or the first, uh, oh, never mind, anyhow. Um, all of the descendants were automatically priests. Now, by the time that John the Baptist comes along, there are probably over 20 thousand priests. There are 24 divisions of priests. Now since the, all of the priests can only serve at, on three occasions during the Jewish year, um, the, the uh, priests are not automatically temple servers. But I get ahead of my story. Let me read the rest of that verse. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. Now, this man was not only chosen from his birth to serve God, but he also was meritorious enough to choose a wife from that same line. So there was double um, the sense of chosenness here to serve God. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child. Now, here is an offsetting emptiness. To the fullness of not only being a priest, but also, as, as we'll learn in, in, in uh, uh, the next couple of verses, Zacharias is chosen on this particular day to go in and burn incense and offer the sacrifice. So he is double chosen. He is chosen, first of all, by the hand of God in the lineage, and then by 
Lot. Look at what it says. It says, uh, Now it came about that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of priestly office, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Because there could be a thousand priests in any one of these divisions, some of those priests might live their whole life and never be able to serve in the temple. Because they chose them by casting lots or bones. You know, that's where we get the term, by the way, lottery. Now, don't feel free to run out and buy a ticket because it happens to be in the Bible. I was trying to trace the words back so that you know where it comes from. It was by casting lots. Not only then was Zacharias chosen by God in the lineage and the genealogy, but he's also chosen on occasion to serve in this special place. But he enters with this deep emptiness in his life. Now, it is very difficult. Many of you know couples that are infertile. They cannot biologically have children together. About 6% of the married couples in the United States have that particular problem. It's a terrible problem. It hurts, and there is a terrible emptiness there. But in this culture, it was even more of a problem. It was so much of a problem, so much of a dishonor that the uh, inability to bear a child was legitimate grounds for divorce. Now from that, we see not only Zacharias' shame, but also his faithfulness. Here's a man who could have freely and without blame divorced his wife, but instead, year after year, of prayers that never came true, he loved his wife enough and was faithful enough to her to stick with her all that time. They loved each other. And so when Zacharias enters the temple that day, it is a wonderful high and a terrible low. It is the wonderful high of being chosen to serve God and being chosen to serve God in a particular place in a particular time, but also of of experiencing that disappointment and failure in life. Not unlike ourselves, by the way, when we consider that out of all the people of the earth, God has chosen us to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. He has chosen us to be saved and to serve. And not unlike us when we realize what we have here in a church family, that God would allow us a church family like this in which to serve him. It is a tremendous honor. And, and, and grace of God that he would call us to this place at this time. But there's not a few of us who have an emptiness. There's not a few of us that, that, that have never been as close to God as we want to get. Have never been able to hear him personally. There's not a few of us that have been after, in church after church and have never been in the fellowship that we thought the church could be. And so when we come, we have that same high and the same low. Now watch what happens. It says in verse 11, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. Now that's an appropriate response, isn't it? I mean, if an angel of the Lord ever comes and stands at the right of your altar, I hope you don't say, Hey, what's up? I hope you just understand what a magnificent thing that is. And not only that, but look at what the angel says. 
He says, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And he goes on and on. Now picture this. Here's a man who has had a hurt all of his life and longed for something all of his life. And an angel appears to him and says, you're going to get what you want. And at first he is so freaked out in our language, he can't talk. Now you know what that's like, don't you? Have you ever been so surprised by something you have hoped for so much, you got it and you absolutely didn't know how to respond? You are absolutely speechless. Even being confronted by a person, you didn't know how to respond. One, one time, Becky and I were in Washington, D.C. This is early in our ministry. Before we had children, we had, we had taken a youth group to Washington, D.C. To, uh, to, for a retreat. And, and, and I love history. I was a history major in college. I love government. I was a government major in college. And I just was in, I, it, this was Mecca to me. You know, I was going and I was, we were in the Smithsonian Institute. I could spend a month in the Smithsonian and just want to stay in there. Well, so we take these kids down to the Smithsonian and they want to stand out on those little pavilions and pay Frisbee. They're out in the middle going, hey, this is great. I'm going, this is the Smithsonian. These beanheads are out there. They're, they're in the middle of all this. They're, they're not interested. I'm thinking, holy cow, and I'm running in on oh, man. And then we we went down into the into the lower parts of the of the uh, Capitol buildings where the connected Congress is connected, you know, and you they have those catacombs down there and I left the kids with they weren't interested in going in there, so I left them with the other um, chaperones to play frisbee and man, we're down in there and I'm got Becky's in and I said, Oh, this is great and I'm going through his, I said, oh, maybe we'll see somebody down there. Wouldn't it be great to see somebody down there? I round the corner and standing right in front of me is Edmund Muskie, Senator Edmund Muskie. Now, some of you are too young to remember him, but Edmund Muskie was a big deal in this country for many years. I knew him. I knew his voting record. I knew um, he had run for president and so on and so forth. And, and there he is right in front of me. And he is obviously gracious enough to stop and want to just respond in conversation to me. And I'm standing there and I do this. <sighs> Hi! That's all I can say. And then I went, th- then I did this. <sighs> Hi! It's, all I, it's the only word that would come to me. I was absolutely mortified. That's all that I could. I looked like a blithering idiot. And I, and I stood, and he was gracious, he just stood there, you know, and was, would have stood there as long as I want, but I could, I was so embarrassed. I took Becky's hand, and I just started running down the hall. And I kept saying, do you know who that was? And I looked back, and there he was, turned around, grinning at me, saying, as if, if you want to come back and talk, I'll talk. And I kept going, that's Edmund Muskie right there, and it just kept going. It was absolutely the most embarrassing moment of my life. Well, have you ever been there where you can understand Zacharias and the fear that gripped him and the fact that he was, he was speechless? And the angel had to say right at first, Zacharias, uh, don't be afraid. I came to give you good news. Now, from that point, the plot thickens because the news gets better and better about his son. 
until it develops into a place. He says, Zacharias, you can read the passage yourself, Zacharias, there will be great joy in your household. This kid, he says, is going to become a Nazarite, not going to shave his head. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's yet in his mother's womb. And he's going to turn the children of Israel back. And then he comes to the very best part. He begins to tell Zacharias of why this John the Baptist will be born. He says in verse 17, last sentence, so as to make a people prepared for the Lord. Now he's getting to the place where Jesus is coming. And Zacharias interrupts him. Somewhere he had found his tongue and he decided to use it. Somewhere he said, wait a minute, i got to crawl back in the, in the place of control here. i got to strike up a bargain with this angel because I can't be fooled in this deal. And so he starts to nail down a deal with the angel. And he says, wait, how shall I know for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, the angel sensed what was going on here. It's the same thing that happens when all of us are gripped with doubt. The normal and natural human response when we're gripped with doubt is to want to take control and work out a bargain that has security in it. And that's exactly what Zechariah starts to do. It wasn't just that he responded to the angel. Mary responded to the angel. She says, how can this be since I've known not a man? And the angel said, well, the Holy Spirit will come. There's no problem. See? So it's not just responding. It is responding in doubt that, that begins to take control. That begins to work out its own system of security. And so Gabriel looks at him and says this. I'm Gabriel. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold. Now, anytime somebody says, and behold, you know something pretty important is going to follow. And look what follows. You shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. Now let me ask you a question. Isn't that been pretty hard on old Zacharias? I mean, why the curse? Why the silence? And would that silence be just as appropriate for us? I believe that one of the things that the angels saw in Zacharias was a tendency to want to take back control. Okay, now you've given me the announcement. We know it's time for the Lord to do this. I'll take over from here. And so he literally had to shut him up so that he wouldn't go and confuse the process any more than he was ready to go and confuse it. 
Could I say to you that when we hear good news, when we hear what God's going to do here in 25 years, our first response is to go make plans, organize it, and get it done. Because now that God's shown us His initial timing, we'll take over. Let me ask you another question. Does God's timing become any less important after He's announced what He's going to do than before He's announced what He's going to do? Is it any more dispensable? The answer is no. God continues His timing throughout what He is doing. In other words... Most of us are tempted if God pauses between the time He announces something and the time He fulfills it, most of us are tempted to fill in the gaps. Most of us try to finish the sentences of God and God doesn't like it. Did you ever have somebody in your life that every time you paused they tried to finish your sentence? Isn't that irritating? I mean, you just take a breath and they run out what they think you're going to say. Doesn't that irritate you? Well, I can guarantee you it irritates God. And I guarantee you, we're not going to get away with it. I still know a girl that I met uh, some dozen years ago in Indianapolis. She still calls me. Her name is Diane. I did her father's funeral some, uh, some years ago. And when I first met Diane, she was uh, in her 20s and she was uh, a paraplegic she was a brilliant girl, had a brilliant career in high school, but uh, she was in a car accident. And, and the, the accident had caused uh, a certain um, dysfunction in her brain, certain contusion that, that never healed, um, uh, dysfunction in her brain. And so whereas she was very, very bright, had not lost any of her intelligence, her ability to speak was very halting. You've seen this in, in stroke victims, you know. They can think... But, but their communication is halting. They, they've got to try to put it into words, and sometimes it comes out backwards, and so on and so forth. Well, this girl uh, had not had a social life. She'd just lived with her mother and father, been confined there. I met her. Uh, we became friends. And so, for years afterwards, she has called me. I'm one of her few outside contacts. Now, when she calls me, it's, a, it's always very evident who it is, because this is the phone conversation. Hello, is J.C. there? That's what she calls me. And Becky will just say, it's Diane. And I get on the phone. Now, when we first began to talk, I tried to help her in her conversation. And she would say things like, Do you remember... There's a pause, and I'd say, when I did your father's funeral? No. <laughs> then she'd start again. Do you remember when? When we first met? No. <laughs> well, after several phone conversations, I got the hint. Every time I would interrupt, she would go back to the very beginning of that sentence. And instead of speeding up the conversation, I was slowing down the conversation. And not only that, but I developed a sneaking suspicion that even if I guessed right what she was going to say, she changed the answer. Why? 
Because she was saying to me, very bright girl, listen, you take care of your end of the conversation and I'll take care of my end of the conversation. You ain't taking care of my end of the conversation. Can I say to you, I think God has the same tenacity that we can run ahead and I think even if we get a few answers right, He changes it just to let us know He's in control. Don't complete God's sentences for Him. You gotta wait until he speaks the rest of it. Silence is so important. Because many times we interrupt God at the best part. The angel was just about to tell of Jesus Christ, and in jumped Zacharias with his form of control, trying to take back over. Let me propose something to you. Let me say to you that we need to develop the discipline of silence before God. I know many people, when I mention, well, let's have ten minutes of prayer. Why don't you try just praying for ten minutes a day? Their first response is, I haven't got ten minutes worth of stuff to say. That's exactly the point. You don't need ten minutes of stuff to say. If you've got three minutes of stuff to say, that last seven minutes can be the most valuable in your life. Because it's a conversation. It's not a speech. We can't finish God's sentences for Him. God is calling us in our prayer life to times of silence. And we're not very good at silence. But He wants it nonetheless. And I'll tell you four reasons why He, do, why he does. And here they come real fast. Number one, because trust comes with silence. Trust does not come with our talking. You know, again, when I was young in the ministry, um, we were in a very small town and a small parish, and, and there was this young man that kept coming to church, and he was a very different kind of kid. And I thought, you know, I'm really curious as to what kind of home life he lives in. So I went to call on the home. His mother had never been to church. His father had uh, come occasionally. And I knocked on the door, and here comes this perfectly groomed woman to the door. And uh, I said, hi, I'm Dr. Hunter from, uh, you know, this church down the street. And I just came to make a call. You know, I wanted to see Philip's family. And she invited me in and began to talk at that time. And she did not shut up for the next hour and a half. I had never seen anything like it in my life. You know, you get in one of those conversations and you think after about 15 minutes, you probably ought to add something just so she knows you're still alive. And so you, you wait for her to take a breath, you know? This is the only woman I've ever talked to who must have breathed through her ears, didn't use them for any other purpose, never took a breath. Never took a breath. I sat there and I listened to a solid stream of words for an hour and a half. I couldn't believe it. I thought to myself, well, if I stand up, maybe she'll be quiet and ask me if I'm going to leave. So I stood up. She just walked alongside me to the door talking the whole time. Got to the door, opened the door, shoved me out. I turned around. She said, I've enjoyed our conversation. Slammed the door. Well, that's the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. I was talking to a more mature brother uh, later on that week who happens to be a Christian counselor. And I had drawn some conclusions from that conversation. I said, 
you know, this woman must need intimacy so badly. I mean, she must be so pent up in that house that, you know, when anybody hits the door, I mean, this huge stream of words comes. She must want friends so badly. And the older brother looked at me and said, Hunter, you missed the point. It's quite the opposite. She doesn't want intimacy at all. And I said, how can you say that? I mean, she's not withdrawn. She talks all the time. That's the point, he said. When you talk, you're in control. When you talk, you're head of the agenda. And you're not put in the uncomfortable position of being asked a question that you have to respond to. You're not put in the uncomfortable position of being any closer than you choose to be at the moment because you've still got the floor. Could I say to you, I think we've got basically that same relationship with God. The only time we have interchange with Him is when we're talking. And I think there's something deep down inside that's afraid to hear what He's got to say. Or at least it won't wait long enough to hear what He has to say. And maybe, could I say this to you? Maybe it's some sort of doubt about God's existence or about a God that has the ability to speak to us personally and so we don't want to find out that God can't do it. Maybe we think down deep inside God's mute or He doesn't want to talk to us anymore when He has said just the opposite in His Word. And so we stay in control of the situation so we're not disappointed, so we don't have to become intimate with God. Second reason, I believe that God wants us to be quiet so that we won't be so caught up in the details of our relationship with Him that we miss the deeper points. Most prayer is about details. Most conversation is about details. Now please, don't let me sell short details. I know that a lot of way, some of the way people get, get closest to talk about details. I know, forgive me for being sexist, but this is very important to women. To talk about things in detail. How was your day? Start with, hi guys, I'm at work. How was your day? And just tell me what went on. I know that that's a form of intimacy. And I know you men and, and this man need to be interested enough in the wife's participation in our life to talk about details, although we can't stand details. We've already lived it. We don't want to live it again. But it's a form of intimacy. It's okay. However, let me ask you to picture what would have happened to Zacharias had the angel not taken away his voice. And he comes out to report to the court of Jews who are also there praying. He comes out to report to them, I've just sent an angel. Let me ask you to imagine the level of conversation that would have gone on if he had kept his voice. If somebody came up to you and said, I've just seen an angel. What is the first thing you'd say? What's he look like? What, did he have wings? Did he have wings? What, do, what, did he have a beard? Did he have sandals? What, I mean, did his, did, his, did his raiment shine like it says in the Bible, you know? Like old Hunter's gray suit, you know? Ironed, this is my angel suit. I ironed this a lot of times to get it to shine and catch the thing. Did he, did he have shining? What, what did he look like? Do you understand that that's how a lot of us spend our whole life? 
Christmas is coming. What are you thinking about? Where are we going to have it? What am I going to have to eat? What am I going to get so-and-so? I've got 26 people on my list this year. How's Aunt Mads going to be with my cousin Jojo? I know they hate each other. What's it going to be like this year? Detail after detail after detail. When if we would just be quiet, we would understand Christmas at its deeper level. One of the reasons that God wants us to be quiet is to not deal with details for a while. Ecclesiastes 3.7 says there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. There's a time to deal with details and there's a time not to. And God's saying, just be quiet for a while. Don't worry about all that stuff. You know why? Because details, again, make us think we're responsible to pull this Christmas deal off. And it puts us in a control position that we aren't in. Third reason is very important to understand the command of silence. When you understand that you can't talk and listen at the same time. It doesn't work. You know, it's like, anybody ever sneeze with their eyes open? It's impossible, isn't it? You can't do it. You can't try it. Try sneezing with your eyes open. Can't do it. You can't talk and listen at the same time. And so, the only way to listen is to be quiet. But we live in a culture where it's very uncomfortable to be quiet. We're going to be quiet in just a little bit. And it's not going to be easy for you. We're going to play the quiet game. You ever play that in the car? Okay, now. We're going to play... We're going to play silent as a mouse, you know? See who can be quietest the longest. Oh, what a strain that is. But you know what? Unless you do that, you're never thinking about the trip. You're just responding to the noise around you. And most of us live in an environment of noise. How many of you going any distance at all can drive in a car without the radio on? And you enjoy it as a habit. How many of you are at home alone without the radio on or the television on or some background with noise? How many think, now listen to this, have some of their best thoughts, some of their best insights when they get into the shower in the morning? You know why that is? Because there's no noise for the first and only time in your day and probably the only place in your house where there's no noise. I hope you don't have a radio in your bathroom. If you do, you're a sick cookie. You need to talk with somebody. There's got to be a place where you have quiet, where you're not reading something, where you're not writing something, where you're not planning some big agenda, where you're just standing there kind of half asleep. See? And God can come and whisper something that you can't hear any other part of the day because you've got your own business going. That's how God puts thoughts into our minds. Many of us think, well, it's because we dream during the night and God's bringing ideas we're so fresh from the night. No, it's just because you're quiet for a while. Just because you're quiet. It is so important to understand that God wants to speak to you. Listen, I read a long time ago, if it pays better for you to talk than anybody else, you better change crowds. Listen to that. You hear what I just said? 
If it's a better payoff for you to talk than anybody else, then you better change crowds. You know what they're saying? You're not benefiting by being being the brightest one in the crowd. Could I say this to you about God? If it pays better for you to talk to God than to listen, you better change God's. Because what you have is a situation not of growth, but of catharsis. And there's more to life than catharsis. Now let me give you the last one, and then I'll quit. The last one is God wants us to get in a habit of silence because over the years, silence accumulates the assumption of God's sovereignty. You know how you're saved, don't you? How you're saved is that you trust. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can plan. There's nothing you can say right. It's just realizing that Christ died on the cross for you. And you finally get to the place where you say, Okay, I accept that. And it's done. That's how people are saved. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that God switches strategies in sanctification? That you are made holy now by your conversation and by your activity? Do you think that God changes? And he says, well, I know that that you're saved by trust and you're saved by just accepting what I've done for you. But after you get saved, then let's switch all of my strategies and and you become busy and, and build it all yourself. Not a chance. Christ said, I'll build my church. And if we are not spending a good deal of our time trusting in God, watching God, knowing God, getting closer to God. If we're swapping that time for a bunch more of our own activity, it's wasted energy. We're not making spiritual progress. We're just making a lot of busy work. It is so important for us to linger long enough that we can hear God and we can see Him like we've never seen before. George Bernard Shaw wrote a a play called St. Joan. And... In that play, the king calls Joan of Arc into accountability. Now, she has stirred up the people because she keeps saying she's hearing these voices. And a lot of people are beginning to follow her. And so the king calls her in. And he says, what is going on? And she says, well, king, I hear these voices. And he interrupts her and says, the voices, the voices. Don't tell me about your voices. Why don't your voices speak to me? I'm the king, not you. And she responds and says, Well, they do. They do speak to you. You just never hear them. Because you never listen long enough. You never sit on a hillside in silence, listening for the voices. You just cross yourself when the angelus rings and have done with it. But you never hear the bells that go on after the sound is done they do speak you just don't listen God wants to build a people who will listen who will listen it takes a long time for you to hear God you know that because you're so used to not listening to him It took me years and years and years to understand how God would speak to me. 
And most of the time, it's not in His Word. It's not the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments voice. It is the voices that come up that God has worked into my life over the years through my teachers and my families and my enemies and my friends. And I recognize it as the voice of God. The same thing will happen to you. But you must listen. Let me challenge you to something before we just have a few moments of silence after a song that that uh, Eleanor will use to bring us into that time. Let me challenge you every day, from now until Christmas, to set apart a quiet time. Now, it would be good during that quiet time to read Scripture. It would be good during that quiet time to read uh, some devotional materials. Get an get a Advent booklet. That's what that's for. It would be good to pray. But don't Get done when you've done all that stuff. Sit. Sit. And don't have an agenda. Don't try to hear God straining, sweat pouring down your face. Okay, I'm here. What? Sit. If you're in your backyard, watch. The birds are feeding, and you're not saying anything. The flowers are blooming. You're not talking. The world's going on. And you're watching. Sit. Silently. And after a while, maybe years, God will begin to move. And he can complete his own sentences in your lives. Pray with me. God, as we hear this song that you gave to Eleanor because she was quiet long enough to hear you. As we prepare our hearts for something that does not come naturally to us. As we instruct our souls in the face of absolute truth that the appropriate response is silence. God, lead us into that discipline. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just be quiet for a moment. Could it be that silence and inactivity is not a waste of time, but the fulfillment of a relationship? God, could it be that even though we're not figuring out word for word the solutions to our problems, that in our silence before you, you could proceed to solve those problems without us? God, could it be that 
you could speak deep in our hearts that not only could we trust you with our salvation, but that we can trust you with our lives as they proceed. Not only have you spoken to us in your word, but you, if we listen, will speak to us in our ears, in our hearts. Could it be that whereas we are righteous in in Christ, but like Job, we, we speak of that which we do not understand, just to have something to say, and someday we'll be pulled up short by you, and we'll have to confess, Oh God, I spoke when I did not know. Oh God, forgive me. I heard you in the ear, and now I see you with my eye. Oh God, I'm sorry. I spoke too soon. Help us not to speak too soon. But to enjoy your arms. To enjoy your lap. And Father, even if we never hear a word, to be able to relax in your sovereignty is as important as anything we could do. Yet, if we listen, we know your nature and we know we will hear. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. May the saving grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you from here, allowing you to rest in His sovereignty and to be silent in His presence. Amen.